1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For Real Vision, I'm Max Wheathey. It's December 3rd at 4 p.m. here in New York City, right after market close. I'm joined today by Jack Farley and Ed Harrison. But before I talk with Jack, let's send it over to Haley Drasnan for today's stories.
2: Hey, Max. We saw the market rally again on Thursday. This time, good jobless claims data that was released earlier today. Initial jobless claims fell last week to 712,000. That's well below the expectations for 780,000 and down from 787,000, which is the revised number from the prior week. It's the first drop in three weeks and the lowest since the pandemic hit in March, but it came during Thanksgiving week and people don't really file claims as much when there are holidays. So there is a natural fall off that occurs, but we just don't know how big it was and we can't really read in too much to these numbers. Thinking ahead, the Thanksgiving related drop could cause a measure of ketchup when next week's numbers are released, so we'll continue to monitor that very closely. It's important to note that while these numbers do show gradual improvements, they're still well above pre-pandemic levels. We're talking three times the pre-pandemic levels, and they haven't even dipped below the Great Recession peak of 665,000 initial jobless claims. So let's hold off on the parties. There are still over 20 million people on some kind of benefits context really matters here. Bottom line, layoffs are still happening in the COVID economy. 25 states reported more than 1,000 layoffs each last week. They are concentrated in the same sectors we saw when people pulled back in March, like food services, healthcare, retail, and hotels. And once again, the jobless claims data has come under scrutiny this week. The Government Accountability Office said that the Labor Department hasn't provided an accurate estimate of the number of Americans claiming benefits. States' backlogs are overloaded with the historically high number of applications which is contributing to this issue. And on top of all of that, millions of people may not be receiving the full unemployment payments that they're actually owed. We're also looking at the jobs report releasing tomorrow. We're expecting that number to inch down a little bit, but again, we need to take these numbers with a grain of salt. Typically, jobs reports are surveyed mid-month, so it won't show the full effect of this resurgence in COVID-19 cases that we're seeing across the country in the last two weeks. I mean, just yesterday, the U.S. recorded its deadliest day of the pandemic with more than 2,800 people dying from the virus, and at least 98,000 COVID-19 patients were hospitalized on Wednesday. That's the highest number of COVID-19 hospitalizations we've ever experienced, and these hospitalization numbers will be the key driver of government-mandated economic rollbacks that cause jobless claims and unemployment to increase. Overall, the labor- market recovery will remain tempered until a vaccine is widely available. Once that happens, some of these jobs may start to come back. So we don't want to trip over our own feet with the finish line in sight. Back to you, Max.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com.
3: Thanks, Haley. Jack, it's a pleasure. Yeah, pleasure to be here. This is our first time uh, being on camera together. How are you doing? I know, I,
1: I know. It's exciting. Well, this is a unique daily briefing because I'm going to be talking to you and Ed, and we have an intro from Haley, so we only have a short time, only about 15 minutes for for me and you. So let's try and get through as much as we can. Uh, we we took some time to to plan this out, so I have a little idea of what we're going to be talking about. So let's start out with sort of these reopening trends that you're seeing and, and some of the the news that we have around movie theaters.
3: Right. Um, so today Warner Brothers announced that not only are they going to be streaming all of their major films uh, in 2021 on HBO Go, but that they're going to be filming them on the exact same day that they're they're released in movie theaters. And you know. Most people who go to the films, um, who, go, who go to movie theaters, I think that they see it because they can't see it anywhere else. Some people go because of the cinematic experience. And, uh, you know, I, I like that. That's definitely part of it. But I think a lot of people go for that exclusivity. So uh, it's a real blow to the uh, movie exhibitors. Um, AMC, uh, Cinema, uh, Cinemark, companies like that were down 8-10% um, uh, today. Um, so that makes me think of what you said about the reopening trade, about You know, we all know this virus. Thank God, is going to end sometime. There is going to be a return to normal. But what is the sort of economic scarring? What uh, uh, you know, trends have we adopted during um, these lockdowns, either by fiat government or by um, just sort of economic behavior and self-preservation? What um, is the behavior that will last? And so, I'm looking at um, movies, movie theaters. I'm looking at airlines, and I'm looking at commercial real estate. Well, that is really interesting, Jack, as it relates to what we're going to see from the
1: potential long-lasting economic effects of lockdowns after we get out. But to me, the question is: Is the check that you know, uh, um, the the big studios that they're getting that they would normally get, say, on an opening weekend from AMC going to be the same size uh, from HBO that they're getting? And and basically, if HBO can't give them the same amount of money that they would get from AMC in normal times, then this will be something that that reverses. But I want to move on to another area of the economy that we're seeing similar things, which is airlines. So uh, you talked to me before about how, uh, I forget which airline
3: it was. Was it Delta uh, American? Okay, so uh, it was both. So um, Delta today, the CEO of Delta, Ed Bastian, released a memo to employees um, saying that the cash Burn, um, is actually going to increase um, during December by about two million dollars per day. So they're expected to burn 12 to 14 million dollars per day. Now Delta has a very good balance sheet, perhaps the best in the uh, airline business, so they c- they can handle that. Um, it's interesting though; Delta was up five percent, and American Airlines uh, was up ten percent. And the reason uh, is because that Ed Bastian forecasted. Um, that by uh, March or April, um, somewhere around there, uh, Delta will actually break even. So it's odd that you know a company is up a full 10% on one of its competitors making this sort of wishy-washy statement to employees. But uh, that was the price action today. Okay. And
1: do you see a trend in these you know internal emails that are meant for uh, potentially being leaked? We've seen that before with Elon Musk, and now this email from Delta. Is this going to be like the new way to circumvent? Uh, having to do these things at, at normal quarterly ends
3: like, like has been
1: done traditionally?
3: Um, yeah, I, mean, I think the media uh, definitely knows what's going on. They, they sort of don't make a huge distinction um, about whether it's reported to shareholders and thus is you know, uh, a, a, illegal if they make a misstatement um, or a material misstatement because of fiduciary duties versus to um, employees. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely an enduring trend, as you saw with Tesla. So I uh, expect it to continue. Well,
1: one of the nuances that we discussed was actually some of the focus that's shifting from um, more consumer air travel to business class, first class, and focusing on you know really the bread and butter for the airline industry. And we were talking about you know yeah that that seems like a good play. Those are the people who have to fly. They're they're generally a little bit more price insensitive uh, to these sorts of things. And as we have decreased. Um, decreased demand, that could make up for some of the decreased demand. But are people really going to be doing business travel as much as they did before the pandemic? Uh, you are interviewing, uh,
3: who is it for the James, CEO? James uh, James Latinsky.
1: Yeah, uh, so you're in- you're interviewing James Latinsky, who's the CEO of, of uh, MP, MP Materials. Yeah, MP Materials, and we did a documentary with them uh, previously, where you know we flew out, we went to the we went to the mine, and you're doing it over Zoom. Like I don't think we're we're going to go to the MP Materials mine ever again, and there, there's good cost reasons why why we're not going to do that. So is this focus, is this turn towards business class really going to last? Or is this going to be another one of the things like we were talking about with movie theaters that? yeah we might get back to normal uh, in a lot of other areas of the economy, but is that ever going to be normal again, or are there lasting changes
3: that that is such a good question. I don't think anyone knows the uh, can really know the answer to it. Um I'll share my thinking you know you're right uh, you know I interviewed uh, Jim Lechinski that comes out next tuesday um i was is he's a CEO of a rare earth mine, and we did uh, go to his mine um in uh, twenty nineteen and uh, that We, we use an airline, um, and now we just did it uh, over Zoom. Will that last? It's funny you say that, because Jim actually uh, invited me to his mind at the end of the interview. Um, so you know, maybe uh, if, he, if he was sincere, I'll, I'll have to take him up on that. Um, no one, looked. no,
1: no one really- is, is Real Vision noticed. going to foot the bill for that trip, or are you going to have to do that one out of pocket?
3: <laughs> <laughs> that, see, that, that is the real question. Here's the thing. I think like, the, secu- the big events- big corporate events and not just like a company retreat um, like the securitization event or you know these massive um, like events where 40,000 people go oh the Berkshire shareholder meeting um, that is still going to happen but are you really gonna have to fly to Buffalo to uh, you know sit across from someone who you can have the exact same conversation um, over zoom the economics uh, would say no you're not we'll see yeah. well yeah, we will see. But uh, another
1: area of the economy that that we have these questions about is commercial real estate. You've been you've been looking at that.
3: Um, yes. Well, I, I've just been looking into a few uh, companies that Jim Chanos mentioned in his interview with Mike Green. Um, companies like um, SL SL Green uh, Realty or uh, Vernado Trust. Um, it you know it's it's quite obvious that people are going to use uh, less commercial real estate as, oh, hey, I'm actually going to be uh, working from home one day a week or two days a week. Because um, that, you know, people have been working from home throughout this entire um, pandemic, and they've noted that they kind of uh, like it. Um, what I've got my eyes on is just how ironclad the leases are. That's why Jim Chanos isn't say it's going to unravel tomorrow. He says that it's going to be uh, a slow motion training. You know that because you're, you're the man who made that uh, whole interview happen. So yeah, well, I don't know. What, what do you think about commercial real estate, Max?
1: Well, I mean, I tend to agree that, that people will probably not go back into the office. I haven't been looking at the leases. Um, I, I'm really just looking at it more as another example of yes, we are going back to normal, but what does that mean? Because it is going to be, to use a, a tired phrase, a new normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, there are reopening trades that can happen, but are any of these reopening trades going to be? How many of them are going to be short-lived, and how many of them are going to be long-lived? And some of the more obvious ones in in like airlines, um, movie theaters, commercial real estate those those might not have as you know might not last. But you know, we were talking about you and I are never going to get a beer over Zoom. We used to you know go to the bar after work and, and have a beer and talk about our days. And I don't think we're ever going to get. Uh, Delivery beers and do that over Zoom, and so there are certain things that we haven't lost our appetite for uh, that that we're craving. And so, if if I were somebody who were looking to to play this reopening trade, and and I wanted to make sure that one is really, it's not that I don't think that the airlines or the movie theaters or whatever aren't going to pop on on reopening and good data. It's how long is it going to last? And so, I don't want to be the person who's left. Uh, holding the bag, like for instance, like the uh, the tanker trade, like that we had yeah. back in March with Super Contango. You know, it, it worked very, very well. But you know what? I got a little greedy and I held on to it too long, and I gave back some of my profits. And because that Contango worked itself out that that fast, so that doesn't yeah. mean it can be a good trade. But how quick is it going to happen?
3: Um, yeah, definitely. No, to the folks at home, you know that trade with Max. It, that trade, Max wasn't the only person who was hurt by that trade because you know I had to listen to it. Um, you know, Ed had to. L- to that trade, uh, we, we all heard about the the kvetching and, and the moaning. Um, I just want to go back to something you mentioned. How do you trade this? And I've been talking about this with Ed a little bit. Is I think there could be a flight to quality. Um, no matter how you know, if the airline industry gets decimated, um, that actually could be a good thing for Delta because American Airlines go out of business like it did in two thousand thirteen. You know, we were talking before this call how you know it wasn't until twenty eleven or the the twenty tens that. Um, Ah, uh, the airline business became something that was thought to be investable because these companies just went bankrupt. There was no consolidation, um, you know, no pricing power. And um, yeah, so I think that if if American Airlines goes out of business, um then that could be good for Delta. So I'm seeing kind of a you know along the quality names and then the short, the um, names that uh, might might get uh, irreparably damaged. In commercial real estate, it's kind of my understanding that the the best assets in commercial real estate, Don't trade. They're owned by privately uh, run companies, so you're going to have to. You you can't buy an ETF on that one. Sorry, but um, yeah, just one last thing on the airlines is, uh, and we can we can put this chart up. Is the TSA traveler throughput? Um, It's the the orange line in this bar chart is the passenger volume um, currently, and the uh, blue line is the passenger volume um, versus a year ago. So obviously, we saw a huge drop off um, in late March. Um, early April, and a slow reopening. but that's the, the growth has kind of um stalled there. Um, the bet is that it's going to increase because the vaccine is is going to uh, you know reopen the economy and make people feel more comfortable about going out. So I think the success of the airline industry as a whole hinges on how quickly that orange line uh, catches up to that blue line,
1: yeah. and, you and I talked about how we couldn't find this chart ahead of time, but I think we have both seen that one of like China and Russia air travel traffic back above COVID levels. So there is some good indication that uh, should we get uh, the virus under control or live in a society that doesn't care about the virus, um, that 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 uh, travel will will return to other levels. But I, I want to move away from these and give you the opportunity to talk about some content. Uh, so, you know, MP Materials, uh, you are obviously we, we've talked to them before, but you were talking about it in terms of the EV revolution and and what could happen um, with basically, you know, Tesla has been running, um, but the question is, is Tesla really going to own the EV market? That's the big question. And if you aren't certain on that bet, you like rare earths as potentially the way to do the picks and shovels of EV. So talk to me about why you're uncertain about who's going to win in electric vehicles and why you like picks and shovels as the real way to play the trade.
3: Right. So um, tech. Tesla has the lead. It has the first mover advantage. It was the first, you know, exclusive uh, electric vehicle couple uh, to company to focus exclusively on electric vehicles that was publicly traded and to be successful. Um, but it is just priced so richly. And you know, if I said this two years ago, I would have also said it was priced too richly. And now it's uh, over ten times more. Valuable, um, but you do see that its market share is eroding. Um, not just you know it's expanding into China, but it's it's eroding. But market share is eroding in the U.S. as well as co- uh, countries like Norway, where I actually know this because I was you know researching my interview with uh, uh, with Jim of that 58% of the electric vehicles. Excuse me, 58% of the vehicles in Norway that are being sold right now are electric vehicles. So electric vehicles are, they're not just the future in countries like Norway; they're the present. So I'm I'm seeing. Um, market share erode in countries, like, in countries like there, and you know vo- companies like Volkswagen, companies like GM. You know you have the uh, you know previously high-flying uh, startups like uh, Nikola, but are the legacy automakers like GM, Ford, um, Volkswagen going to catch up? You know I just saw the headline today of a Bloomberg Intelligence uh, report that um, Volkswagen is now pricing uh, its electric vehicles um, at under the key quarter million yuan mark so you know, that's about 38 39, forty thousand um, dollars so you know really targeting the Chinese middle class um, that we, we could see the we could, you know we, we basically Tesla it had it, it'll uh, have to over deliver in order to keep its dominance in the electric vehicle market and so it, we don't just know which companies we, we don't know which companies are going to dominate the space we don't know which technologies is it going to be lithium batteries with cobalt or or um or zinc we we don't know is it going to be um you know hydrogen powered fuel cells like Nikola? but we do know with you know as as with almost as great confidence as you can have that that battery is going to uh touch against and run with a motor that needs um ndpr which is a uh rare earth uh which is which are two rare earth um, material, so that's why Jim Litinsky and, and I um, sort of think of this as a picks and shovels play. When there's a gold mine, you don't want to be owning the gold. You don't want to be rushing down to the mine. You want to be standing outside the hole with a pick and with a shovel and selling that to the the brave folks who go and brave, you know, the deep uh, core of the earth. So that's the picks and shovels play. Okay. Well,
1: my, my argument would be people know that that's the picks and shovels play, and so it could already be priced in. So why isn't it priced in? And is a company like MP Materials why is it interesting? Is it because of the ore they have in the ground, or is there some other reason why somebody might be interested in a company like MP Materials?
3: Okay. So um, it is. There are two two mines of any scale uh, that mine rare earths um, outside of China. And it has over 80 percent of the market. Fifteen percent of the market is the Mountain Pass uh, mine. There's also some mine uh, in Australia that's pretty small and, and has a, a few problems. Um, but yeah, it, it's, so really, it is the only game in town. Now there, there are other deposits, but this mine has actually existed um, for I think over a hundred years, um, and you know. The, the Previous uh, owners invested a lot of capital into making sure it's the -the state-of-the-art facility, and the mine is about eight percent rare earths, whereas in China it's about one to two percent. But that's not the big advantage. Um, The big advantage is that soon uh, MP Materials is going to go to stage two and stage three. So they're going to make not just they're going to export um, REO rare earth uh, you know concentrates to China. They're going to be able to make their own magnets and you know companies like Tesla, companies like Nikola, whoever the winners are and whoever the losers are, they're going to need um, those magnets. So that, that's the MP play. Uh, Max, I, you've been very generous with your time. I know we've got to speak to Ed, but you know they uh, some people like uh, Nick, Nick Correa, they called me uh, the plug because I like to plug content so hard. So I'm just going to do one last thing and plug um, an interview that comes out tomorrow with Hugh Hendry and Lynn Alden. Um, they talk about the uh, euro dollar market. They get very Very deep into it um, about China, uh, mercantilism, um, you know, international balance of payments and commodity exposure. Really, you know, all the big macro questions that affect pretty much every asset class under the sun. So that comes out um, at midnight tonight. So watch that.
1: All right. Well, thank you for that, Jack, and thank you for your time. This has been a lot of fun. Hopefully, we can do it again soon. Absolutely. Thanks, Max.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: All right. Well, that was a lot of fun to get to talk to Jack. And now I'm on to Ed. Ed, thank you so much. Yeah, good to talk to you again, Max. Two days in a row. Yes, it is two days in a row, and you know normally, we don't get new, fresh data as quickly as we did, where yesterday, we were, we were talking about a bit more of a long-term view for you, um, but we got some jobs data today, and we got some interesting news about stimulus. I think that's the best place for us to start. What is the new data that we got in that that really affects your thesis that we talked about yesterday?
4: Yeah, so two things that came in today, and then a third that is tomorrow. So the two things are on the political standoff in on Capitol Hill, and then also on initial jobless claims. So this morning, initial jobless claims, they came in, they were really low. Uh, I think the number was 717, uh, even though the last week got revised up a bit, 717 was a good number. I think uh, the only way that you can spin the number negatively, which you can do, which is, is that the number was low because we had Thanksgiving holiday, and so as a result, Really, you can discount the number somewhat, but it was a great number. Uh, it was it was significantly lower than expected, and so that's a positive. B- by and large, tomorrow we're going to get the the uh, the jobs number, and as I think I was telling you yesterday, you know I've seen as low as minus 250. Uh, you know the consensus for that number I think is about 440,000. Uh, even if we get a 440 400 number, I think the consensus is 440 and about 6.8 uh, percent unemployment down from 6.9 percent. Even if we get 400 and we get 7 percent unemployment instead of 6.8 and 440, I think that markets are in relatively a relatively bullish enough frame of mind that it won't rattle the market. You could have you you'd need to see. A really nasty number for people to then start moving into thinking. Okay, uh, yeah, this is this is really looking bad. So, what would be the big surprise for you? Would that be
1: great numbers or a bat, a really bad number that's looked through by the market? What is the big surprise that that doesn't really fit into your framework?
4: Yeah, that second one is the one that that uh, I, I, is not in my framework. I think a really good number, you know, something in the order of 800,000. That's not on my radar either, but I, I discount that as a possibility. I think there is a possibility that we get, let's say, you know, 50,000 jobs or negative 50,000, and the market looks through that. That's not necess- I think there is a possibility that that happens, uh, and if the market were to look through that, I think that that tells you where we are in terms of how people are thinking, you know, the mindset that people are in, et cetera. Okay, and what would that change about your framework? You know, you'd go back to the
1: drawing board a little bit. What would be the new the new framework that you would move forward with, uh, should that be the case?
4: I think that you know, um, I don't know if it would change my sort of medium term horizon, which is is that there would be a differentiation in in shares because obviously, if people are uh, that wedded to their positions now, if the data come out and create that differentiation, then it's going to be that much more abrupt of a change to get to that level. Um, but it would give me some, uh, you know, some positives in terms of the the, uh, the overall outlook on the other side of uh, of the the long cold winter. Meaning that you know, when we get to the other side in terms of the rotation trade, that you know, people are are in such a positive frame of mind now. That uh, we can uh, really rally uh, well once we get to that side of it. Okay. Well, the other piece of data we got was some news about the potential
1: for fiscal stimulus ahead of of maybe the the Biden administration moving into to Washington. So, what was the news that we got, and uh, are
4: you are you buying it? Well, you know, the news that we got, and whether I buy it, that that's a good question. the The news that we got was that more Republican senators have bought on to this bipartisan uh, $908 billion deal. So uh, not only that, but Nancy Pelosi and all the Democrats have bought into it. So there's a, a, an emerging consensus within Congress that we can do this $908 million. At the same time, however, uh, the Trump is dealing with Kevin McCarthy uh, in the House, and also uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, and they have a separate deal, which is a skinnier package. So we still have this, the competing packages, but there's m- many many more people in Congress coalescing around the bigger package. I mean, it's not as big as the Democrats want, but it's pretty big, uh, that's bigger than the skinny package that the House leadership for the Republicans and the Senate leadership for the Republicans is working on with President Trump. So to me, that says that there is some momentum relative to where we were yesterday for potentially more stimulus. Um, uh, would, for instance, all of the people who are supporting the $908 billion package move to the skinny package if that skinny package comes out? Maybe. Uh, what does that mean in terms of my bogeys, you know, of the four things I was saying yesterday that only one of the four? Is, is i i you know I don't think that all four would necessarily get done. It doesn't change that because it, obviously a skinny package is is skinny, but uh I think that it will you know there is more potential for a compromise than let's say there was yesterday and remember even if Trump were to uh veto if enough congressional uh coalescence comes together. Uh, if that's a word, then you could get an override. You could have enough people from the, both the Democrats and the Republicans coming together to say, no, we want $908 billion. I don't care what you say, Mr. President, we're going to get this done.
1: So the, the possibility
4: then would be that the 908 comes through and a Trump veto, and then
1: the question then becomes, can we get enough uh, congressional support to push that through in spite of Trump not signing it? The other exactly. one would be- the other one would be that the only support that that Trump is able to that he's willing to give is on the skinny package, and then the Democrats are unwilling to push that through. Uh, which one do you think is the bigger risk? Do you think it's everybody coalescing around the skinny package and Democrats not not wanting to push it through, or the potential for Trump not going for the the nine hundred eight billion?
4: The biggest risk, I think, is Trump uh, not going for the nine hundred eight. Because I think that there are there are enough people, I would say the entirety of the Democrats and then a decent number of moderates on both sides, you know. So that's more than fifty percent in the in the uh, House and in the Senate that are coalescing around this nine hundred eight package. And I don't think that that's a package that has Trump support. And it's not clear to me that he's in the frame of mind where he'd say that you know I'm going to do it because ultimately. It's, a, it's, it's between does it help uh, the economy and does it help Joe Biden? You know, he has to decide for himself uh, which of those two is more important to him. Okay.
1: And let's say we do get that $908 billion package. What does that do for your framework? You said it, it doesn't affect the sort of four big, big things that could happen. Why don't you remind everybody what the other three potential pitfalls are?
4: yeah, so uh, I, I think there are four pitfalls, and actually, I, I would add a fifth that we haven't really talked about. So we have a fiscal cliff in terms of the government uh, shutdown. Uh, and that's somewhat unrelated to what we're talking about now. Uh, but this this is related to three other things, which is the uh, moratorium on uh, on foreclosures, the moratorium on evictions, and also pandemic unemployment assistance. Uh, going forward. So those are the four uh, fiscal cliffs, and this only takes care of, to a certain degree, one of them. It doesn't necessarily take care of the evictions or the uh, foreclosures. It doesn't necessarily take care of the government shutdown uh, because of a continuing resolution. And most importantly, uh, in terms of things that we haven't talked about, it doesn't take care of- uh, states and municipalities, because that's one of the things that we haven't really talked about. We we were really talking about fiscal cliffs for individuals. States and municipalities also are asking for help as well, and they're, and they're not going to get it in all likelihood in the skinny package. I don't even know if it's in the $908 billion package as well. And then, of course, we're not also talking about companies, whether they're getting any sort of bailouts and that sort of thing. So that's off to the side. I was really more concentrated on the individuals. And so I don't think that the dynamics there have changed uh, tremendously. Okay, help me understand the states and municipalities a little bit. Are you more worried about
1: the types of support programs that they have in place being cut? Or is it about the jobs? They are large employers here in the United States.
4: No, I think it's that they are hitting the wall in terms of what they can do, and that they're asking for fiscal relief, meaning that when you think about what states and municipalities can do, they have to balance their books because they don't have a magic magic money tree out back called the Fed that can do stuff for them. The federal government, they can tax uh, in ways that the states and municipalities can't, and they have the Fed support. So ultimately, when push comes to shove, they can get it done in the way that the states and municipalities can't. And so- the question is, are they willing to do that, the feds? And so far, the answer has been no. Okay. All right. Well, that that covers a good update on what we
1: got in today. I know you wanted to do a little bit of discussion of an interview that you did recently and how it relates to your framework um, and some of the other frameworks from our guests that we've been discussing. I gave Jack the opportunity to plug a little content. I think it's fair. <laughs> I give you the opportunity. So what is it? What is it? Ed? Who did you talk to?
4: Yeah, so actually, let me set it up by saying: so yesterday, I guess the conversation was what's happening in the real economy, and then uh, do we care over the longer term in terms of the the financial economy, the uh, the markets? And I was saying, in particular, I was talking to Kevin Muir, and he said, "No, we don't care." Uh, I was saying the real economy: bad things are going to happen in the short term. Some are bad. Some could be even worse. And probably my baseline is going to be a double dip. But does that matter? Uh, it doesn't necessarily matter if you believe that 2021 is going to be great uh, and that the market's going to look through that. That's what Kevin Muir was saying yesterday. So I spoke to uh, Richard Bernstein today. Rich Bernstein, he was—he's actually a former colleague of Dave Rosenberg, who we speak to a lot here, and he's pretty bullish for 2021. And I thought it was very similar to what Kevin Muir was saying, but he has it from a very different perspective. I, uh, what I would say is, and, and by the way, this interview is coming out on Monday. What he says is, is that you know you have to look at the profit cycle uh, in terms of thinking about growth and value. When you think about small cap, large cap, when you think about cyclicals, non-cyclicals, U.S., non-U.S., and he has a bunch of other things that he's talking about, inflation, et cetera. And the reality is, is that profit cycle peaked in 2018 and we're now at a very difficult period for the economy, for cyclicals in particular, 2021 are going to have incredibly easy comps for cyclicals. And that is not priced in, he says. No matter how much you priced in, you're not pricing in 50, 7,500, 200. He even mentioned the number, 300% growth for some of these cyclicals. The, uh, something that he said that I thought was very interesting, he said, if you want to get involved in cyclicals, you want to buy when they're 90 times earnings, not when they're nine times earnings. Why? Because cyclicals, their earnings get crushed at the bottom of the cycle. They look incredibly bad from a price earnings perspective. But even there, it's not pricing in the, the expansion of earnings potential uh, as they come off the bottom of that cycle. So, very interesting comments uh, from him in terms of how to think about the real economy versus uh, the financial economy. That is very interesting. I've never
1: heard that in cyclicals in terms of a market timing mechanism like that. Um, Was there another interview you wanted to to touch on? Am I mistaken or?
4: No, no. I think that was the when I talk about you know two interviews at all. It would be the the juxtaposition between what Kevin was saying and 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 uh, and what uh, uh, Rich Bernstein was saying. It's not really a juxtaposition as much as it is. They're saying the exact same thing, but from a different perspective. They're talking about you know a, a build up uh, environment, uh, you know, a nominal GDP growth that's high. They're talking about inflation expectations increasing, and therefore, you know, a steeper yield curve that could favor financials. Uh, Rich Bernstein, in particular, talks about financials uh, outperforming because that's basically where you get value versus uh, growth uh, underperforming. Because, you know, as Kevin would say, those are long duration plays. Uh, Rich Bernstein would say that they are earnings um, solidity plays, and what we've seen. As the growth uh, from a secular perspective has been kind of punk, people are looking for the the solidity. They want solid growth, and they think they can get it from the technology companies. But as the cycle turns, and you get higher interest rates and you get higher inflation, you have an, instead of the narrowing that we've gotten in terms of the fang, he calls them the Fab Five. You get a a whole bunch of other companies where you can get growth, uh, earnings growth from. And so as a result, people are going to move away from those companies, and they're going to move into uh, the other companies. Um, So he's talking about value over growth. He's talking about cyclicals over non-cyclicals. He's talking about non-US over US. He's talking about a weak dollar. Um, And I think he's talking about inflation. Uh, and nominal yeah. GDP growth being relatively high. So, and, all very bullish. And rising interest rates, did I hear that as well? Yeah. So, I mean, when you have uh, a steepening yield curve, it, it means, you know, flat. Uh, that means that you are pinned on the short end and rising on the long end. And that's very good for financials. So, when you think about the the, the growth versus value, he said, really, you know, you get the almost entirely that's basically technology versus financials i mean you can throw energy into the the values part as well but to the degree that you're talking about financials by and large dominating the value segment a steeper yield curve is good for them and, and right. that's completely apart from the conversation that we just had about cyclicals uh, and you know the 90 pe versus the 9 pe all right. Well, somebody who who matches up at least
1: on the, the potential for uh, yields to move up is Jim Grant. I talked to Jim Grant today, and considering we've already had a few plugs, I'm only plugging this for one reason, and that's because it was a Real Vision Live that was available to essential members. So, if you were an essential member and you didn't watch the Jim Grant interview because you didn't think you had access, you do. And that's all I'll say with that because you have the ability to go watch it right now today. Uh, <laughs> But other than that, that's all I got for today, Ed. Thank you so much for coming back. I know you have a little outro that is that is your responsibility now.
4: Oh uh, yeah, that's right. You know, I, I didn't even think about that because a lot of people are, are looking at this on other platforms and they may not know that they can try out uh, Real Vision for one dollar just uh, for a, a seven day trial. And if you are watching this, you know this is just one of many things that we do. We need to have the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You know, we have uh, interviews every single day. We have the essential tier, the plus tier, the pro tier—a massive uh, panoply of different uh, things that you can do on the Real Vision platform. Check it out. That's my plug right there. All right, and, and to all of our our viewers uh, in front of the
1: paywall here at RealVision.com, thank you. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you for tuning in today.